0: Brandon Nimmo's got a nine-game hitting streak as he leads off and he grounds one past the mound and Bryson stopped the shortstop. High throw! Good changeup, hit on the ground to first
1: and it's booted by Reese. So that'll be E3 for Lindor. Hit hard and Donovan boots it. Lindor's on to start the third. Well, we mentioned the
0: Phillies' defense at the outset and this has been a theme for this team. Slow roller, Franco. Throw up the line yet again into the camera well. And Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. We're going to start with the Mets, who are playing out of their minds Some really interesting facts about, let's say, the kind of teams they've played and what they have done to press the issue against them. Uh, Since we're going to start with the Mets, we'll obviously talk about the Phillies and whether they still have the same manager by the time you hear this podcast actually being aired. We will move into our three batter minimum. We'll talk about Mookie Betts having an incredible year. The really cool thing the Dodgers are doing. Not talking about being swept by the Pirates. That was somewhat less cool, though it did happen. Jose Ramirez, I don't want to say he's having the best year you don't know about because obviously everybody knows about him. But I don't think we've really dug enough into how interesting his year is. And the major league leader in home runs by a team, at least before the doubleheader that's about to start in New York, I guarantee you, you don't know what team that is. We'll get to that. A couple of guys you should talk about for first, Matt the Mets. Wow. (laughs) I mean, man. Okay. The Mets are 35 and 17. They are up by 10 and a half games over the Braves. And they're having a really interesting year offensively. You know, like their pitching staff is a little depleted because Scherzer's hurt and McGill's hurt and Degrom's hurt, and they've still been doing okay. So credit there. But I want to focus on the offense. The Mets have really just pounded everybody like all year long. And at first, for the first month, I thought it was a little flukish because you go to the end of April, they were literally last in baseball in a hard hit rate and they're making more contact and i get that And that just seemed like a thing that could not persist and to their credit it hasn't they're 12th in may like that's a huge jump but i've watched a lot of mets games over the last two weeks i actually went to the game uh, on sunday against the phillies and here's what i realized the last four teams the mets have played are the giants rockies phillies and washington the worst four defenses in baseball are the giants rockies phillies And Washington, they've played the Phillies 12 times. They've played the Nationals 10 times. 30 of their 52 games, nearly two thirds, have come against the four worst defenses in baseball. I say that not to say that it's a fluke. I say that not to take credit away from the Mets because against those teams, maybe just putting any ball in play actually does make a lot of sense. And like I said, they've actually hit the ball harder. Pete Alonso is heating up. But Matt, you've watched a lot of Mets games too. Have you ever seen such daily atrocious defense against a particular offense in your entire life?
1: I mean, there might be some recency bias at at play because yesterday against the Nationals and that that, that game was just like absolutely brutal. The the Nationals made uh, numerous screw-ups that led directly to Mets runs. But obviously, you know, we've talked about the Phillies. We'll talk about them more. It's well documented. Their defense is bad. The one that really stood out to me is actually the Giants because like it doesn't surprise me that the Giants have a bad defense just because it feels like their lineup is loaded with a kind of these like nondescript. uh, You can say Darren Ruff. It's okay. (laughs) Darren Ruff's, you know, Austin Slater's of the world. Like I don't think of them as having a bad defense, but then again, I don't think of them as having a especially good defense. But um, in that series against the Giants when the Mets actually lost two of three, but I think they scored like. 13 runs in one game and 12 in another. There was a number of uh, shall we say, questionable defensive plays made by the Giants that aided the Mets, the Mets' efforts. <laughs>
0: this is my favorite stat of all time. So the Mets played seven games against the Giants. And they made there, they posted 78 hits in seven games, which is a credit to the offense. You have to make contact to get hits, you've got to put the ball in play, you've got to hit it reasonably well, and that's fine. The Giants played some of the worst defense I've ever seen. And do you know how many errors the Giants were charged with in seven games against the Mets? None. (laughs) Not a single one. And if you go and watch some of the highlights of that series, there's some egregiously bad defense. So there's a little bit of, I'm not so sure about that scoring, and a little bit of, you've got to be good to get an error, because if you don't get close to the ball, you will not get charged (laughs) with an error. And again, I'm not trying to take credit away from the Mets, right? Like my premise here, uh, aside from just, you know, watching the Phillies, Phillies it up and the Nationals, Nationals it up, was that Mets Twitter seems to think that because they're making a ton of contact, like it's old school baseball, right? It's just that. And I'm like, okay, but the Royals make a ton of contact and they just fired their hitting coach because they're terrible. You know, the, the Nationals make a ton of contact. They're not very good. The White Sox, I thought would be good. They've been awful. They make a ton of contact. Like, it can't just be making contact. And I think what's happening is, is two things, right? Over the last couple weeks, they're making good contact. Like, that hard hit rate is up. Alonzo's crushing the ball. Like, every time I turn around, Starley Marte's doing something good. And also, they're doing it against teams that have absolutely no capability to play defense. Like, at all. That's why this upcoming road trip's really interesting. They're playing the Dodgers, who I don't consider the Dodgers to have a terribly strong defense, but obviously they're a very good team, as we'll get to later on. They're playing the Padres, who have a really strong defense, and they're playing the Angels, who have a really strong defense. And I think going through this road trip against uh, maybe the best team in baseball and two of the best defenses in baseball, that is going to tell us a lot about what kind of offense this Mets lineup really is. Because if they get through this trip, and they're still putting up tons of runs and scoring, I will uh, I will defer. I will say, you know what? You're right and I'm wrong. This style is going to work. And if they don't,
1: if they get shut down by teams that actually play with gloves on their hands, uh, then maybe we're going to have to talk about this again. <laughs> Back and forth on the Mets offense. Like I think I've been somewhat skeptical in the early going, especially, as you noted, when we saw that their hard hit rate was, was subpar. Definitely turned around a bit of late. You mentioned Marte. You mentioned Alonso. Francisco Lindor now has a way to runs created plus and an OPS plus currently this season that is higher than his career OPS plus with Cleveland. Additionally, over the last calendar year and like it's a little bit of a cherry picking, but I mean, it's at least like a a set amount of time going back to essentially May 1st of last year, his OPS plus with the Mets is better than it was in his career in Cleveland. So the Francisco Lenora has basically been the player the Mets thought they were getting with the exception of his first month in New York, first, you know, five or six weeks in New York. So, like, he's actually been very good as well. Um, so you're actually starting to see, like, the the proof of concept of what this roster could be. And as you mentioned, the strikeout rate, they're fourth best in strikeout rate, but then again, some of the teams that are better than them, the Nationals are one of them. So it's not just that. And they're second in the majors to the Rockies, who always lead the league in, in batting average on balls in play. They're second in batting average on balls in play. So, like, this all comes to, like, there's definitely a little bit, I think, I don't know, flukiness is the right word. I think, you know, Mark Canna has like a 360 batting average on balls in play. Luis Giurme, who's kind of like the NL's answer to Luis Arise, um, just like no power, incredible contact. He's hitting 365, but he has a 411 batting average on balls in play. So, like, there's some performances baked in here that are just not really sustainable. But, like, there's depth to this lineup that, like, I still think they're going to be a good lineup no matter what. Right now they lead the majors in war via Fangraphs on, on offense with their hitters. I'm not sure that's going to sustain itself, but I still think that they're probably – now that we've started to see the guys who we expected to actually be good sort of look like the the, the good versions of themselves, it's, it's a top 10 offense, I think. I think it's legitimately a top 10 offense. Um, what do you think? I think the unquantifiable um,
0: vibes are good compared to last year's team. You want to give that credit to Buck Showalter, sure. You want to give that credit to the fact that they actually went out and acquired a bunch of guys like Kana and Marte. um, Eduardo Escobar I've never met, but everybody seems to say that he is just like the best dude and brightens up your clubhouse. I'm not blind to that kind of stuff. I think that totally makes a difference. I did want to drop these last couple numbers here, though. I looked at the games, uh, 32 games against those four very bad defenses, and then I looked at the remaining games. Right against those four very bad defenses, uh, they have put up 5.6 runs per game. Against the other four teams, they've played 4.5 runs per game. Except. The home run rate is identical. They're not hitting more home runs. Boy, what's the difference? Well, against the teams that can't field, it's a 335 batting average on balls in play against the teams that some of them can field, a 282. Again, the Mets have been crushing the ball. They've been putting it in play. That is credit to them. But man, the Phillies and Nationals are tough to watch. Speaking of, the Phillies, do you think they're going to fire their manager by the time you hear this? Today is an off day for the Phillies. They are starting a home series tomorrow against I believe the Angels. Uh the Phillies are 22 and 29 they are 12 and a half out. The Pirates are 22 and 27. The Pirates have a better winning percentage than their in-state rivals the Phillies. yeesh and the problem is it's getting worse. Josh Jean uh, Segura who's actually been really good for them. He's been a good hitter and one of their only good defenders. He broke his index finger trying to bunt. He is out for 10 to 12 weeks. He might be back in September. If at all, Bryce Harper, who is and still an MVP caliber hitter, uh, can't play the outfield because he's got an injured elbow, and that elbow kept him out of the lineup yesterday. And this is going to be an ongoing thing going forward. And I know that all the Phillies fans want to talk about is should you fire Joe Girardi? Should you fire Joe Girardi? I'm indifferent. Like, could it hurt? Probably not. Will it matter? No. Are you going to bring in, I mean, literally anybody, Larry Boa, I don't know, like bring Sam Fold down from the front office. None of those guys are going to be able to teach Nicholas Castellanos how to play defense or the bullpen to not be terrible. I just, I don't think it's going to matter. This is sort of the team you've got.
1: Right? Yeah. And I think, I think, in you know, there's never been, I think, a team where it was like the manifestation is like exactly what we predicted in the offseason, where it was like, hey, they, they put this team together of like eight ATH, DHs. What could possibly go wrong? And it's like, well, now we see what could possibly go wrong. And like, yeah, Joe Girardi might have had a seat at the table and in making these decisions. So, but that's like not his job. Like the roster he was hand, handed, you know, I expect them to probably be better than this. They actually have a positive run differential plus one, but like, they're probably a little bit better than their record indicates. But when you're a team that is bad at the little things, I think you're more likely to lose close games. I think that's that's a reality. Like, there was a game last week against the Mets where, and I think this is one of those sort of intangible things where you see maybe Buck Schultz are making a difference where they basically scored two runs in the first inning on sacrifice flies to Nicholas, Nick Castellanos that were basically like, I don't think any other right fielder in the league gets run on, on them. And the Mets scored on both of them. They were like 250-foot, routine fly balls to right field that he had they were in the same inning he had plenty of time to like line up the throw and it was I think one of them was Marte another one was like a less fast runner but it was like we dare you to throw us out like we know that like you're not very very good at this and we're gonna we're gonna challenge you and they did and they were successful I don't think either of them was particularly close either and that kind of thing happens with the Phillies all the time there was a play against the Giants the other day in extra innings where Reese Hoskins botched a grounder and Jairus Familia didn't even cover. And it was just like this, this happens every game. So it's, it's not a surprise at some point. I saw someone, uh, a, a Twitter account tweet this the other night that I thought was a, a perfect encapsulation of the Phillies, um, an account named Metz Tradamas. So clearly a little, little trolling going on here. They said the Phillies were constructed like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that had no peanut butter, and the solution was to just add more jelly. <laughs>
0: I've enjoyed the Mets fans saying that they have just like shaken off their innate Metsness and
1: transferred it to the Phillies. <laughs> it's like so, it's weird for Mets fans to be optimistic. <laughs> I, I mean I will say this. I mean, one of the crazy things you mentioned Harper, it's like sign him to that long-term deal. It's rare for a team to sign a long-term deal like this that like works out about as well as it possibly could and it not lead to anything. You know, like I feel like you 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 add this superstar in his prime this huge contract and they're going, I mean, I guess, I mean, the, the the wild card is not out of the question, especially now that we have an extra wild card team, but like, if this is now what Bryce Harper's fourth year with the Phillies. And he's like basically been a superstar the entire time. And they haven't sniffed the playoffs yet. That's like, that's gotta be pretty disheartening. Cause like, that's gone. Like him and Zach Wheeler, you know, some of these, they're, they're big free agents they're big acquisitions and JT Romuto have like have hit pretty well. So they've done a really good job, at like the big stuff and Everything else just hasn't worked out.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. So Girardi has taken a lot of criticism for his usage of the bullpen. And I, I think some of it's fair. Like some of the decisions he's made have been a little confusing to me. But there's one I keep going back to last week where there was a lot of, uh, let's say, angst about how he did and did not deploy his closer, Corey Knable. And again, I think it's fair. I don't agree with the decisions he made. But what I kept coming back to is Corey Knable's stuff is down like considerably. His strikeout rate is way down. He just does not look very good. And if you're talking about well, he's your best reliever, then I think you've got way bigger problems than your manager because <laughs> he's just he's not getting anybody. I don't want to say he's not getting anybody out, but his strikeout rate is down, and uh, there are a lot of like under the hood concerns there. And I just I don't know what you do. Like Jason Stark had this really interesting fact in the Athletic, right? So there, <laughs> if you ever if you look in the modern era of baseball, how many teams have ever come back to finish first in their division after being 12 and a half games back in may only two the 2006 twins who i only like vaguely remember and the 1914 boston braves definitely seem like a comparable data point here (laughs) so i don't want to say they're toast uh i just don't know what you do like you can fire the manager all you want but the number one thing they ought to be doing is saying okay who's playing shortstop for us who is playing center field? go trade for Brett Phillips, or I don't know, Nick Nick Ahmed maybe isn't super healthy right now, but you can find guys who can just field the ball. Like That is what you need, because you cannot have your pitching staff every single day going out there saying, dear God, I wonder what's going to happen next, because every single time you turn on a Phillies game, something happens next. Uh, these are not the only two teams in the, in the division, by the way. Um, Matt, I know you wanted to talk about how Juan Soto is bad now, so I'm going to clear the floor <laughs> for you on
1: that. <laughs> I don't want to talk about... There is a Juan Soto stat that is almost like... I love Juan Soto. I think he is a you know transformative star. He's not having his best season. There's one stat that I think speaks to that that is like absolutely mind-blowing to me. I don't know if you were aware of this. Did you know that Juan Soto is three for 39 with runners in scoring positions this year? I dispute that. I I don't even know how... I dispute the fact that the non-Juan Soto Nationals have had 39 runners in scoring positions this year. (laughs) But like, there's all this, you know, I think he had like for his first six home runs, he had seven RBIs. And it was like, LOL, the Nationals, they're terrible. Now he's only got nine, he's got 16 RBIs on nine home runs, which is like a ridiculous ratio. And like, yes, some of that's the Nationals. They don't put runners on base. But man, three for 39? Like, Yikes. that's crazy.
0: I know we don't do like our rant segment on the show anymore, but if we did, I would have about 11 minutes queued up on the insanity of the idea of trading one soda, which seems to be floating <laughs> around these days. What? Don't
1: do it. Maybe in two years. Sure. Right now. Well, uh, no. Like, how could you? I mean, my, Mike Brzezicki went on the radio yesterday and said as much, and I think the, I'm glad. I hopefully, hopefully that shuts it down for at least you know a, a, a week or two. I mean, once he actually got to a slow start last year, this this year is even worse. I think you know he's hitting two twenty seven, three seventy six, four thirty two, which is actually a one thirty five OPS plus in this environment, which is you know still pretty good. It's hard to know what's in his head if there's a feeling of like, oh my goodness, I got no help here. I gotta, I don't know how I can. You know, do I need to like, am I pressing? I don't know what I can't read into it, but like the three for 39, that's just it seems almost impossible. Um, I'm sure it will get better, but it's it's a microcosm of just the, how how uninspiring the national season has been.
0: Yeah, when I was watching the first two games of them playing against the Mets, this is kind of like another thing where it's like, I'm not trying to take credit away from the Mets, their offense is very good and they've earned a lot of this, but also Eric Fetty and Patrick Corbin were just throwing non-competitive pitches like they looked like they had no ability to be in the big leagues the good news here is that steven strasberg is finally rehabbing he reportedly looks very good and uh, just for the sake of baseball i'm excited to see him back again we'll take a quick break on the ballpark dimensions podcast and we'll be back with our three banner minimum We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, usually when Matt and I get together and talk about what topics we might like to discuss. Some of that discussion happens, let's say, two to three days before the podcast. So two to three days ago when I said, hey, we got to talk about Mookie Betts and the Dodgers, it seems like a great idea. And then they got swept by the Pirates, literally the Pirates, (laughs) who, uh, about three minutes before we started recording, Matt pointed out to me that the at Pirates Twitter account Dropped like a wrestling style (laughs) slam video, like with all of these highlights about how the Dodgers, I guess, broadcast team had referred to the Pirates as a losing team that finds a way to lose, which is true, um, (laughs) except they swept the Dodgers, which respect. (laughs) I enjoyed that. I thought that was pretty.
1: Baseball needs more petty beefs. I'm all I'm here (laughs) for the Pirates social media team putting together this, like, you know, like as you said, WWE style, like you know, taunt video. We need more of this. It was great. Yeah. The Dodgers are still I mean, Mookie Betts has been incredible. Let's talk about how great forget about the Dodgers for a second. Let's talk about how great Mookie Betts has been because the Dodgers are finally getting the Capital M Mookie Betts that they traded for.
0: Yeah, and just because you brought it up real quick, I, I'm aware that there is a much more entertaining petty beef happening in baseball right now, but I got nothing for you on fantasy football and Mike Trout being the commissioner, although I will say I have enjoyed it very much. Mookie bets, I was shocked to find this stat Maybe I'm the last person on earth to know this. Did you know he is tied for the all-time lead in the history of baseball for three home runs games, three or more home run games? I had no idea. He has six. Sammy Sosa has six. Johnny Mize has six. Think of all the sluggers you've ever heard of, right? Your Hank Aarons and your Babe Ruths. No, Mookie Betts. That one was stunning to me. He's kind of back to what he looked like a couple of years ago. So he's got 16 homers in 222 plate appearances this year after 23 home runs in 550 plate appearances last year. Uh, if you go back to that that break, not to say breakout, but the all-time great 2018 uh, and you look at his weighted runs created plus last year, where 100 is league average, he was at 185, and this year he's at 182. Weird thing to me. Uh, you look at a guy who's crushing homers, especially in a year where you know home run is down. Uh, I thought, well, okay, getting it in the air more, crushing it more. Like not necessarily. Uh, his barrel rate is not really that much up. What's happening here? is that when he gets the ball in the air, he is pulling it a lot more. You know, that's where his power is. It's pretty good ballpark Dodger Stadium to hit for pull power. So 22% of his flies and liners are pulled, second highest in his career too, wait for it, 2018. And his hard hit rate is up. So he has really um, been fantastic. And what I think you were trying to get at is, I hate to say he was disappointing in his first two years with the Dodgers because that's super unfair. He was very good his first year. Last year, I think it says a lot about, how high expectations are for him that he was 30% above average as a hitter and had like a three and a half war season. And everybody's like, hey, what's wrong with Bookie Betts? You know, because he was hurt, his hip was hurt, his defense was down. And this year, I think he might win the MVP again.
1: Yeah, I think I, I I was I was probably I was unfair to him by saying like they finally getting the good version of M- Bookie Betts. The 2020 season I think warped a lot of our perceptions. I know it warped mine. He just finished. I'd forgotten he finished second in NLMVP that year. Right. He was um, good. And they, the, and they did win the World Series. So obviously that worked out pretty well. As you said, last year he was mildly disappointing, but it was still like, you know, I talked about this last week where it's like his 127, you know, OPS plus, whatever season it was, like a, you know, f- you know three to four war season is like, it's within the the standard deviation of what like a Mookie Bet season is. It's It's a little bit down, but it's still like, Okay, that's not bad. It's just when you've seen what he did in 2018, and he's still in his 20s, you sort of assume that like he's going to be that guy every year. And that's, I mean, there's very few players who have that kind of consistency at that high level. One of whom is Mike Trout. That's part of what makes Mike Trout so so incredible is that he sort of maintains that like nine WAR threshold for like a decade at a time, where he has done that to this point. And you know, on on MLB.com today, we released our latest MVP watch, where we sort of asked vote asked. Ask our staff to vote on MVP based on based on what we know now and what we sort of predict for the end of the season. Who do we think will end up being MVP? And it was Mookie Betts in the NL and Mike Trout in the AL. Were those your votes? I don't remember. And I wish I
0: had to say it's definitely Trout. Yeah, I think it was probably Betts and Trout. I think if you would ask it's funny, like every Padres fan thinks it's Machado, every Mets fan thinks it's Alonzo, every Cardinal fan thinks
1: it's Goldschmidt. I guess uh, you know, there are too many good players out there. I think it based on the, the May that he's just had, I would have said Betts in the NL. Looking at the NL, again, I don't want to I don't want to put too much into um, you know, six, you know, eight week war, but looking at Fangrass leaders and war, it's actually pretty funny. Betts leads the NL, Machado second, and then three, four, and five are all on the Cardinals. Goldschmidt, Arenado, and Tommy Edmond. Uh, I would not have guessed that. And then, you know, in our vote, it was the NL vote was Betts, Machado, Goldschmidt, the top three, and then uh, Pete Alonso and then Bryce Harper. Pete Alonso is fourth on the Mets in Frank war behind Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, Brendan Nimmo, and Pete Alonzo, and yeah, and Brendan Nimmo. Um, so there's a lot of different directions you can go in that. I, th- I feel like um, it, I would have said Machado two weeks ago, Betts today, but it's really close. A lot of season left to be played. In um, the AL, Trout sort of seems like the obvious choice, although Aaron Judge has obviously been quite good as well. I was sort of surprised that Freddie Freeman didn't really get any votes, but um, I guess a lot of times you can only you can only uh, I should say didn't didn't finish in the top five. But then again, you can only have so many players from a certain team. Usually, people like gravitate towards one player or the other. But Freeman should be in that conversation too, right? Well, I
0: think so. And it's funny, if you look at the Dodgers lineup, mostly it's Betts number one and Freeman number two, as you kind of mentioned, both having MVP caliber seasons. So I went and I looked, I wanted to see what was the best one-two of all time. And this is anybody who played in those positions all year. It's not just strictly like your primary number one, number two. The Dodgers so far this year have posted a 936 OPS out of the first two spots. That would be The second best of all time, with a caveat, the first best of all time would be the 2020 Yankees of D.J. LeMahieu and Aaron Judge. If you'd prefer to ignore 2020, then the Dodgers are number one. And that's true on a uh, a year-adjusted basis, too, if you don't want to just use row OPS. Uh, They're ahead of the 1999 Yankees, who had Chuck Knobloch's great year and Derek Jeter. This year's Angels, which I guess makes sense, Shohei Otani or, or Ward hitting ahead of Mike Trout, and the also 2020 Atlanta Braves. Here's something I wish I hadn't written in our document so I could have forced you to guess. The next team on that list would be the 1903 Cincinnati Reds. You know who hit one and two for the 1903 Cincinnati Reds? You're about to. Mike Donlin and Cy Seymour. <laughs> Definitely players. who played in the major leagues uh the other thing too the dodgers and again they just got swept by the pirates so it feels a little weird to praise them too much they have a run differential of 112 they are giant air quotes here on pace for 362 outscoring their opponents by 362 runs so long as they don't have to play the pirates again that (laughs) would be third best since the start of the 20th century the 1939 yankees the 1927 yankees but if you feel as i do that None of the history matters that much before integration happened. This would be the best run differential in integrated baseball history. Again, it's June 2nd. Lots of weird (laughs) things are happening. Uh, If we want to talk about weird stuff being on pace, let's move on to our second topic. Jose Ramirez is on pace for 183 RBIs. This is one I might actually believe in because he's kind of becoming like a borderline Hall of Fame candidate in my mind. He has 13 homers and 15 strikeouts. Right, twenty-eight walks. So he's got a seven and a half percent K rate, the lowest in baseball. And all the guys around him are kind of the guys you think, like low power contact hitters: Luis Ariz, Stephen Kwan, Jose Iglesias, uh, you know Jeff McNeil. So I went back and I looked. And I'm like, this guy's crushing the ball, and he's making elite contact. How many guys have there been in the divisional era going back to 1969? Strikeout rate under eight percent, and a slugging percentage over 600. Eight. So that's Ramirez, a couple of seasons from Pujols and Bonds, the greatest seasons from Nomar Garcia, Para George Brett, and Frank Thomas. Again, 200-plate appearances is not 600-plate appearances, but it's not like this is out of character for him. And before that, a whole bunch of seasons from Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, and Ted Williams. This is, the I don't want to say the best version of him, because I feel like we've seen that for like five years now. But this is something else. Like The, the contact plus the power is borderline unprecedented in the modern version of baseball we have here
1: it's he's i always hate to say oh he's underrated because i feel like what happens when people we talk about players underrated eventually they become so underrated they almost become overrated because like all the smart baseball people are like oh he's underrated and then suddenly it it catches on and then it stops being a thing and then it almost gets overdone but man he's his you mentioned hall of fame like he's he's been top three in the mvp three times he finished sixth another time He's well on his way to being top three again this year. He finished third in our latest AL MVP poll. There really isn't anyone like him. This this like low strikeout, like high power. I mean, there are, but like he's he's now be like he's now an outlier even among like his his peers right now. I don't like yes, Albert Pujols is currently a peer, but not really a peer in terms of the type of player that he is. And it's pretty incredible to watch. And like it's. He gets a little overlooked. He used to he used to get overshadowed by Lindor, and then Lindor left, and then now the Guardians have sort of been rebuilding, but they're kind of spunky and fun, and they are they have the lowest strikeout rate in the league, I believe. So they actually have, like, this has become, like, obviously Ramirez leads that, and he's the unicorn, but, like, it's not an accident that it seems like they've sort of gravitated towards that, that style in a way that's kind of made them an effective offense this year, and like, a little better than I expected them to be, to be honest. Did you realize, because I didn't until I just looked at this,
0: he stole 27 bases last year? He has eight straight seasons of double-digit steals. He's already got seven this year, so he'll almost certainly get there again. And I think if you if you take that and the fact that he's a, a pretty good defensive third baseman, I, I don't think I would say he's Arenado or anything like that. He's going to end his age uh, 29 season, which is this year, at something like 40 wins above replacement which I don't have like an all-time ranking or a list in front of me, but that's pretty good, especially when you think that in the hall, third base is traditionally like the least represented. There's just not as many third basemen in there as there ought to be. And by the time he's eligible for voting, which will be in, I don't know, 12-ish years, I feel like the electorate uh, will be made up of people like you and me who will be thinking about those things. So I actually think if he continues on some kind of pace like this, he's going to have a decent shot. I get it, it's premature. But man, have we come a long way from, I guess, A, when he was like this light-hitting utility fielder, and B, when all of us baseball nerds had to keep remembering which Jose Ramirez was he when we put his name into the baseball reference search engine. Our third topic, and I promised you, you wouldn't guess what team has the most home runs in baseball. I guess this is going to change in the next couple hours because the Yankees and the Angels are playing a doubleheader. They're second and third. But for the moment, this moment in time, the hard-hitting Milwaukee Brewers have 70 home runs, which was stunning to me. And the way they're doing it is interesting. Their leader, Rowdy Chavez, has 10. That's fine, but it's only tied for the 21st most. What they have is the most players in the game, with five or more home runs. Eight different guys, and yes, I'm going to name them. Willie Adamas, Keston Hira, Jace Peterson, really. Hunter Renfro, Tyrone Taylor, Rowdy Tellez, Luis Arias, Christian Yelich. Not on that list. Lorenzo Cain or Andrew McCutcheon, who have combined for a 252 on base and a 50 weighted runs created plus. So they're getting very little out of those 2 longtime stars. They're getting a ton out of Rowdy Telez. And even though it's not a great offensive lineup like we never thought it would be, it's league average, uh, they've got... A number of guys who can pop the ball out of the park.
1: It's it's interesting and surprising. I definitely would not have guessed that until you'd mentioned it to me a couple of days ago that they were leading the league in home runs. And I don't even I don't even know where to begin. Right? It's just like the Brewers, really, and you know the, the cast of characters you mentioned. It's definitely not like certainly not household names. And a couple of these guys have been banged up as well. Um, maybe I'm a little skeptical on the sustainability of it. But then again, the Brewers have done a really good job the last few years of sort of. Finding these types of players and getting good performances, like basically, like hey, we have this great pitching, and we're going to sort of surround it with pieces that make it work. And obviously, it was a lot easier to make it work when Christian Yelich was, you know, MVP candidate Christian Yelich, and he's not that guy anymore. He's also kind of come back to earth quite a bit, um, which is a little disappointing because it looked like for a while maybe he had kind of rediscovered some of that superstar magic. But they make it work. And do you think that? I mean that that race the NL Central race might be the most interesting in baseball this year the Brewers sort of feel like they're the favorite but the Cardinals as I mentioned they have three of the top like six guys in position player war do you think the Cardinals can make it make it interesting
0: uh, I think so because the Brewers clear strength is pitching and the pitching is having some injury problems like Freddie Peralta is going to be out for a while Brandon Woodruff is banged up uh, your guy Luis Perdomo is on the injured list and that's a crushing blow to any team that's trying to get into the playoffs what's kind of fun to me is when you look at the Brewers offense, I think all of us knew, you know, they pitch pretty well and they'd have a little bit of a weakness at the plate. And so when you got to the trade deadline, they were definitely going to go out of bat. But if you'd asked me at the beginning of the season, where is that bat? Then I would have said the infield, right? Because in the outfield, you've got McCutcheon, you've got Yelich, you've got Kane, uh, you've got Renfro, you know, Taylor's a decent backup. And like, I wasn't expecting necessarily a ton out of Kane and McCutcheon or anything, but you know, there's a decent number of guys. And then in the infield, you just had a ton of question marks like Colton Wong's a very good defender he's not a great hitter but you could argue for an upgrade at third base at first grade anywhere and now I'm looking at their team and I'm like they need an outfielder Kane kind of looks like he's done McCutcheon kind of looks like he's done Yelich has not really been very good for the last month which like ongoing problems for him and they might need an outfielder which is not something I expected but to your question can the Cardinals overtake them yeah I'm kind of buying into what the cardinals are doing but i picked the brewers to win the division and i'm going to stick with that we'll take a quick break we'll be back on the mob.com ballpark dimensions podcast We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to finish by identifying a guy that we should be talking about more. I think mine this week is pretty fun. Christopher morell of the Chicago Cubs got a really interesting backstory, which I'm going to tell you about. But first, I'm going to tell you what caught my eye about him, and that is that he seems to be The heir to the just-have-fun baseball throne. If you ever find a picture of his glove, I really you should go look for it. It's got a giant emoji smiley face on it. Jordan Bastian, our Cubs beat reporter, asked him about it. Here's the quote from Christopher Morrell. Every time I'm trying to smile on the field, you've got to have fun on the field. You have good moments. So every time I have bad days, I see my glove, and it's have fun. Love it already. He is just an incredible high-energy guy. He tripled the other day, and manager David Ross said, uh, that exact slide reminded me of Javi Baez. He's playing the game with a lot of passion. His teammate, recent call-up Nelson Velasquez, referred to Christopher Morrell as my bestie. I already love him. Here's the interesting part about his story, though. He signed as an international free agent out of the Dominican with the Cubs in the summer of 2015, but he did not play until 2017 because a freak injury. He was running to catch a bus ran into a glass door, and here's a quote, slashing a nerve and a tendon in his left forearm and badly cutting the left side of his face, he nearly lost his eye. This is before his pro career even got started. He spent the last couple years in the minors for the Cubs. He hit, came up, he pinched it in the seventh inning of his major league debut, hit a home run in his very first plate appearance. He later told Wilson, uh, later told reporters that he had told one inning before that, Wilson Contreras and Alfonso Rivas, that he was going to do that. He apparently called a shot that he was hitting a home run in his Major League debut. Through the end of May, he'd reached base in 14 straight games, breaking Kajaris' Cubs all-time record to start a career. He started at second, short, third, center. Uh, The upside here, like best case, seems to be more of like a Chris Taylor kind of player, which is super valuable. He's only 22 years old. But really for a Cubs team that is in transition and somewhat faceless, I guess, to have a guy like this come up and not only be successful and potentially someone who could be there the next time they're good to play the game with such joy and to just be so excited he's even there especially given what he went through uh, earlier on in his pro career he's super cool so Christopher Morrell I have enjoyed watching him and I hope you all do
1: yeah, yeah you see the glove how can you not love and you see the comments how can you not love this guy I'm now rooting for this guy and as you said like given that he can play multiple positions and some versatility in his age he seems like exactly the kind of guy that you can you know he's not necessarily a centerpiece but is a piece that you know like hey, as we build out our roster, there's probably a place for him because of, of, of that versatility. Um, so the guy I want to talk about is arguably the best reliever in baseball this year. And at one point, and most people will probably say that's Josh Hader. And hey, you can't argue with Josh Hader, who's yet to allow a run. And I think he has a, a streak of like 30 straight appearances. Like, he's on the verge of tying the record for sc- scoreless uh, appearances in a row. Josh Hader. Very strong argument. And at what point you would have said this guy's teammate, Michael King, was the best reliever in baseball this year, but Michael King has really been struggling. So I want to talk about Clay Holmes, the Yankees reliever who may very soon actually <laughs> displace a Rollis as Chapman as their closer. There has been some chatter as hard as that is as hard to believe as that is. But Clay Holmes right now, 24 and two thirds innings, has allowed one run with an 82% ground ball rate. Um, zero home runs allowed a 1.14 expected ERA. He's been incredible. He's been a pitching ninja favorite because his slider is insane. And the thing about clay Holmes that's sort of almost like you hate to, to pour salt on the wounds. It's like really another former pirates pitcher who's come left the pirates and specifically in this case, gone to the Yankees, just like Garrett Cole, maybe not directly, but Jameson Dion and had success. Man, oh man, here's another one. And I was doing some research on Clay Holmes and I found the story that Jason Mackey did at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette just last week. Jason Mackey did sort of a check-in of like, hey, here's this former Pirates pitcher. You may remember this guy who had a 4.93 ERA with the Pirates last year, who he basically traded traded to the Yankees in a trade that basically no one thought about because we thought he was terrible. And now he's become one of the best relievers in baseball. And basically what happened is that two things happened. First and foremost is Clay Holmes basically dropped his curveball when he came to the Yankees. He basically went from throwing it a quarter of the time to one-tenth of the time with the Yankees. And now he doesn't throw a curveball at all. He's not thrown a single curveball at all this season. He's a purely sinker-slider. And which which Mackie points out, what's kind of interesting is that the Pirates used to get criticized when their pitching coach was Ray Seerage. They had a lot of success on a race searage when they had their revival, you know, about a decade ago, a decade ago. And Searage's whole thing was was sinker ball, two-seam. He wanted all of his pitchers to throw two-seam fastballs. And it actually became a problem because guys like Garrett Cole and Tyler Glass now were like, no, I want to throw my four-seam. I'm better with my four-seam. And those guys thrived when they left Pittsburgh when suddenly they were allowed to go and throw their four-seam fastball. With Holmes, it's been different. He's actually leaned into a sinker more. He basically now only throws the sinker and his slider. So in some cases, it's like actually going back to the, the race stage movement. But he says basically that by focusing on a sinker, it's really helped his release point. He said, as we told Mac, he said, throwing my sinker definitely helped the release point. There was a simple mindset with, with what the Yankees wanted me to do with it. I'm basically throwing it at one spot every time. I'm not trying to hit sides. I'm basically starting it at, staring at one target. The catcher will set up a certain way. I throw it there and I trust it. So basically, Clay Holmes ditched the curveball, leaned it into a sinker in his slider, and has become one of the best relievers in baseball. And maybe the Yankees closer sooner rather than later. I mean, it basically already is because Chapman's been injured.
0: True. Um, I was watching the Yankees-Rays series last week, and Jameson Tylan threw eight shutout innings, and he was followed by Clay Holmes to throw a shutout ninth inning. And I thought to myself, man, the 2018 Pittsburgh Pirates are going to be just fantastic. And then I realized that was mean. Uh, Last-minute update here. As we said, the Yankees are playing a doubleheader. Matt Carpenter is homered. Clay Bertores is has homered. They now have the Major League lead by one over the Milwaukee Brewers. Whatever. It's still a National League lead. They were the leaders this morning. I thought the Brewers coming into the year would be like 23rd. So we're going to go with it. It's going to be fine.
1: Is that Matt Carpenter's third home run with the Yankees in like a week?
0: If there were things that were more predictable than Matt Carpenter will hit the short porch and right field of the Yankee Stadium, I would like to see them. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. See you next week.